Happy Hour, a podcast in which I, Tina, a real live opera singer, tells me, Amanda, who, as per usual, was writing her composer bio five minutes ago, about the plot of an opera, and we probably ruin it for everyone. And guess what, Tina? What? What, Amanda? Do you remember how last week you told me that you were going to give me a gift this December, which was that every week you were going to let me have a little control and choose a theme of an opera, and that you would then pick an opera based on that theme? I can't believe I would say a thing like that. Well, you did. <laughs> you can't renege now, bitch. Um, well, I actually got you a gift as well. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. What is my gift? Your gift is that I'm going to surprise you with a special guest every <gasps> week in December. What? And this week, I know. And this week, our special guest is none other than Ben Quam, who, if you don't know Ben Quam, there's a good chance he knows you anyway, because this man... <laughs> knows everyone <laughs> and I would describe you and Ben please chime in if you would disagree with this description I would describe you as just the most skilled generalist that I think I've ever met like this guy can do just about everything and everything he touches is good so I don't you know you had me Maybe. hold on you had me you had me agreeing with you until you said everything I touch is good. I don't know that I'll go that far. But a skilled generalist. He's even good I don't at think, humility. I don't think anybody's ever hit it that perfectly on the head. That is a perfect way to describe me. I'm somebody who knows a uh, uh, a little bit about a lot of things, but I don't know a lot about much of anything. I would say that you know more than you're giving yourself credit for, though. Like, we'll find out. I guess I will. <laughs> I know I like this Manhattan, so at least we got that going for us. Yeah, really quick before I do the bio, tonight we're sponsored by Tattersall Distilling in Northeast Minneapolis. Is that technically Northeast Minneapolis? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, um, they are distributed at least throughout the Midwest. Delicious, like probably one of my favorite liquor creators, maybe ever. Um, and I have a lot of experience. Um, and also, uh, we are drinking cocktails made with these mixers, these cocktail mixers that they are currently selling at a lot of Lunds and Byerly's locations throughout Minnesota. I'm having, uh, I believe it's the habanero cucumber something shit. <laughs> well, a lot, of, a lot of people don't understand how hard it is to make a habanero cucumber something shit at home. And <laughs> they're trying to take out the work of the middleman and bring that habanero cucumber something shit to you with less work. And I think that's what we Yeah, and it was it was so little work. It was so little work to make my habanero cucumber. God damn it. <laughs> okay, so this is so it's it's very, very simple. Um it's a bottle of the mixer and it's a bottle of booze, but this one is paired with gin. And get this, I didn't know this until after the fact, and I think I'm gonna have to try it too. But Tattersall makes a killer awk of it which is so hard to find a good arc of it, not in Scandinavia. The ones that are nationally sold in the United States are horrible, but Tattersall is really, really good. And I am super stoked to try this again with Akavate. What are you guys drinking while I look for the actual name of my cocktail? 
So I am drinking what they call the Apple Gold Rush, which has apple and ginger and lemon and honey in it. And you mix it with their rye, which, by the way, the rye on its own is fabulous. It's one of the best ryes I have ever had. It's, you know, when you drink a rye and it's and, and the alcohol hits you first and then you get like the aftertaste of rye, this is the opposite. It is like very, <laughs> very rye forward, I would say. And it's made with 100% Minnesota grown rye, which is fabulous. Oh, that's cool. And the apple gold rush is really surprising to me because as we've said before on this podcast, I do not like a sweet drink so much. And so if I saw this on a menu, I would be a little bit skeptical, but I'll tell you the ginger hits you more than anything and it balances really well with the rye and it's just really tasty and I'm gonna have to make like two more of these tonight <laughs> the really cool part with with Tattersall is that they have their minds behind the cocktail bar and their tasting room are also they're helping develop the spirits so they're trying to figure out how everything is going to work better um, I've been a huge fan of Tattersall literally since they started uh, one of the founders, Dan. You're so cool, uh, You're so cool Ben. No, he was, he, so Jenny and I, we used to have a restaurant called the Strip Club Meat and Fish that we went to for all of our anniversaries because it was on the other side of St. Paul and like nobody would bother us. And Dan was one of the bartenders there. So we got to know him from celebrating our best moments. And he kept coming up with different concoctions behind the bar and eventually turned that into a bitters company, which then eventually turned into Tattersall Distilling. So for me, it's like when I sip this Manhattan, I think back to when he made me a Manhattan with Jenny nine years ago, Aww. and he was using other people's whiskey to try and make the best cocktail possible. And now here I am talking to the two of you, and I'm sipping on a bottled Manhattan that is exactly the way that he wanted it because they designed everything to taste like that. Oh, that's really cool. It that's... comes full circle. I love that. I'm like tearing up a little bit. <laughs> Um, so my drink is actually called a habanero cucumber south side, <laughs> not a habanero cucumber goddammit shit. Um, and it is, it's got just like the tiniest little hint of spice in it. That's really lovely and not overpowering at all. But yeah, it's cucumber, mint, habanero, lemon juice, lime juice, and it's, you can add a little bit more spice with their habanero bitters, which is really nice. Mm. So that's, that's what's up with Tattersall and what we're sipping on tonight, but I need to do a biography. Yes. And this week's composer <laughs> is Philip Glass. Like only the most fucking prolific 20th century, 21st century composer. <laughs> Right. I guarantee you this dude's Wikipedia page has nine other Wikipedia pages. It's yep. ridiculous. <laughs> nine is a vast underestimation. Okay, of all, right. Many. all right, Amanda. Okay. All right, hang on. You got, <laughs> you got one minute on the clock. Okay. Ready, set, go. Philip Glass, cousin of Ira Glass, was born January 31st, 1937, and is an American composer and pianist, widely considered one of the most influential composers of the late 20th century. He's written numerous operas, as well as for musical theater, symphony, concerto, quartets, chamber music, and film scores, three of which have been nominated for Academy Awards. He was born in Baltimore to a record store owner and a librarian. His father's occupation in the record store, as well as a wealth of musicians in the family, he's also related to Al Jolson, opened him up to a wide array of musical styles from an early age. He studied at Juilliard, got a Fulbright, and studied under Nadia Boulanger, who was a freaking big deal in Paris in the mid-60s. He has spent his career working and collaborating with such varied musical and dramatic names as Ravi Shankar, Leonard Cohen, David Bowie, Samuel Beckett, David Byrne, Martin Scorsese, Woody Allen, and I don't know how much time I have left, but it's ridiculous to try and summarize this in 60 seconds, so I'm just going to give up. <laughs> 
<laughs> did you even set a timer that time? You didn't even set a timer, I did didn't you? Even set a timer. No. <laughs> well, I timed it. I timed it before we started and I did have 15 seconds left. So, I mean, but I just, you know, I just got to a point where I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous to try and condense this any further. No. And I think you did a really good job of, of just giving everybody an idea of how prolific he is and how well connected he is and how influential. I don't know that I did do that good of a job because I just feel like there's just no, there's just no way. Well, but even (laughs) just putting that list of people that he's worked with, even though it's abbreviated, you just put that out and you'd be like, what other artist has worked with that wide of a, a I know, group of right? people? Oh my also, God. can I, I I'm, I'm going to admit my, um, my ignorance here. I actually, I feel like I do know a lot about him as a composer, but somehow the most, like the easiest bit of trivia, he's the brother of Ira Glass from NPR. The cousin. The cousin. The cousin. Yeah. I, I know, right? I never knew that. I know. <laughs> I also never knew that. Um, yeah, and I don't know if they're like first cousins or second cousins or what, but in my research. <laughs> so you have your cousins and then you have your first cousins. <laughs> oh, don't even get me started on this. Are you are you a person who's confused about how this works? Because I will draw you a diagram. No, I know. I, <laughs> I'm just a person who quotes Mean Girls occasionally. Oh my God, that is what that's <laughs> from. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> if you ever do need help understanding how cousins work, you just let me know and I will help you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm already married. So I feel like I'm out of the danger zone. The only reason you want to know about cousins is to make sure you don't accidentally interbreed. That's the only I mean, function of this for you. That's the only reason anybody wants to know. I mean, <laughs> well, I was trying to think of another like important practical application and I guess that is the only one (laughs) I love that you were trying to think of something else practical and all I could think of was trying to force in the fact that in Iceland there is an app for your phone and when you meet somebody at the bar you both have to look up whether or not you're related because everyone on in the entire country is registered and because it's been a pretty close community for so long there's so many second and third cousins that they literally have to have like a can I fuck you app. Also, I'm really sorry I said that. Am I allowed? Is this a- Yeah, you're allowed. We have the explicit, we have to have the explicit tag because I am on this podcast. Yeah, (laughs) I I called bullshit and I have a friend who's Icelandic. And when we were in Norway hanging out, he showed me the app on his phone and he explained that there's like a 10 or 20% chance when you're at a bar that if you meet somebody, you might be related to them. That is- discouraging (laughs) you know what's funny is that incest actually comes into play this week a little bit hey that's the first time i've ever (laughs) fist pumped for that but here we are (laughs) oh man okay so the opera that we're talking about this week is akhenaten yes Amanda's pumped. I'm excited. I'm excited. Okay. So we're talking about Akhenaten, which was written in 1982 by Philip Glass. And it is the third opera in a trilogy that he calls the Portrait Trilogy. And the other two in the trilogy are Einstein on the Beach, which is about Albert Einstein, of course. And then Satyagraha, which is about Gandhi. And it seems like these three people don't fit together. 
But the reason he chose them is that they were all driven by an inner vision that altered the age in which they lived. So for Einstein, it was science. For Gandhi, it was politics. And for Akhenaten, it was religion. <gasps> this is this is what I asked you for. Yeah, because yeah. Cool. last week, so, so for the month of December, I'm giving Amanda the gift of a little control and she gets to tell me what kind of opera she wants to talk about. And so last week, the prompt was sacred versus secular as it pertains to like the holiday season. So that's a tad tricky to find an opera. Yeah, so, I'm sorry. I was such a specific salty bitch about that. <laughs> No, it's okay. A little, a little extra. I racked my brains. I racked my brains for hours and hours and hours. And then I settled on this and I'm so happy I did because I think this is going to be a fun one. I'm stoked. So I, I altered the sacred versus secular a little bit to be nowadays what's considered pagan by Western culture versus nowadays what's considered sacred or like religious in Western culture. But in order to understand where this opera is coming from, I need to do a little Professor Bins and lecture about some Egyptian history. Yeah, wait, Professor Bins? Yeah, from, from Harry Potter, like I talked about last week, oh. about how I'm just going to ramble on and on and on and leave my corporeal form behind and then just keep lecturing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. so three, two, one, name as many Egyptian gods as you can. Go. Uh, Ra, Isis. Uh, Osiris. There you go. Um, uh, fuck. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm up. Ra. Uh, fuck. I'm literally trying to sing the song from Prince of Egypt in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you guys did pretty well. Like you named you named the top Five? one. <laughs> I would top also ones. I would also accept Horus. That's another well-known yep. Egyptian. Oh, god. that's fair. Yeah. Sphinxy. Sphinxy's another one. So basically, there are over two thousand of them. Oh. God damn it, Tina. They all, all 2,000 have distinct personalities. They have different parts of them that reflect different parts of nature and like human nature. They have different clothing. They're all just super distinct. And the core of Egyptian values is harmony and balance. So all 2,000 <laughs> plus deities live in balance with each other. How on earth? Oh my God. That sounds exhausting. <laughs> like, how on earth? Are they striving for harmony and balance with 2,000 distinctive, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm assuming, maybe I'm looking at this through like a monotheistic lens where I'm assuming that all of the gods have the same level of like power and omnipresence and omniscience and things like that. And maybe they don't, but that just well, everybody Everybody had their own like little fiefdom, like all of mm -hmm. the Norse mythology, Roman mythology, Greek mythology, it's all the same kind of idea where every little thing had a god that looked over it. Sure. And if you were a farmer, all you gave a shit about was like who was looking over your crops and then maybe who was going to help your ancestors across the river. Yeah. But you didn't have to learn everything. But I guarantee you there was one fucking dude in every town that was the, well, actually, it's the god. <laughs> like, there's no way that there wasn't one of those dudes in every fucking town in ancient Egypt. <laughs> The mansplainer of the Nile. The, go the godsplainer, yeah. The godsplainer. <laughs> it's a, a mythologist misogynist. Ooh. That's a fun ride for your mouth. I like that. What I love is that you just pulled that out of your ass. Like, you just, you knew that. Tina, <laughs> Tina, did I tell you, did I not tell you that I was giving you a gift this holiday season? This, you know what? May I introduce you to Mr. Ben Crumb? Christmas Amanda <laughs> gave to me. 
Ben Quam on our podcast. <laughs> a, guy, a guy who knows a little bit about Egyptian mythology and a lot about misogyny from Dune. <laughs> look like me. You know what? That's I wouldn't have it any other way, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> but you're you're absolutely correct that like there there are just like little pockets of society that they they know that there are many other gods, but they worship the ones that pertain to them, and they build their cities around them, they build cults around them. I mean, their their agriculture, their like you know their their monetary. Uh, what am I trying to say? Basically, their whole society is built around these gods. The f- the finance gods. Yeah, the finance gods. The Wolf of Wall Street gods. Got it. I'm tracking with you. So Akhenaten exists in the 18th dynasty, the 18th Egyptian dynasty. So we're talking about mid-1300s. And the pharaoh, Amenhotep III, dies, and his son takes the throne. And the son rules under his original name for about five years, Amenhotep IV, which means Amun is satisfied. So they're, they're really underneath the god Amun. And early in his reign, he starts to order that temples to Aten and shrines be built around his city and other cities. And he starts to elevate Aten, who is the disc of the sun. And so he is like a portion of Ra, the sun god, like the overall sun god. Okay. It's very much, it's, if, I, if I understand this right, it's very much like a sort of like a, a god and the Holy Spirit in exactly Christianity. Where they're the same, but they're also separate. Yeah, the Holy Trinity. Yeah, kind of. I mean, like you, you get like the warmth <laughs> from the sun, and it helps right. your crops, and you get like all these good things from the sun, and like the physical. Dip. But there's actually still a, a thing that's a sun <laughs> in the sky. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Disc. <laughs> so around the fifth year of his rule, Amenhotep the Fourth does away with all Egyptian gods but Aten. And he elevates him to the one and only true God above all and basically invents the first monotheistic religion. Hot damn. Does he have any sort of like influence making him prone to this? Or is this something, I guess, I guess what you said in the beginning is that the reason that Philip Glass did this is because it was a vision that he was pioneering that was counter to his culture. But did he have any sort of like, was anybody whispering in his ear about this from a different so, culture? Yeah, n- not from a different culture. Um, even though their names are Amenhotep, they are worshiping Aten already and kind of elevating him. And then when it comes to his rule, he decides to take this drastic next step and say, like, you know, the sun is everything. The sun rules our lives. Like, it's when we get up in the morning. It's when we go to bed at night. If it's too hot, our, you know, like, people will die of, you know, starvation because the crops have died or people will be dehydrated like the sun rules everything in egypt and therefore he is the one and only true god i mean he's not wrong (laughs) so basically it means that entire cities that are built around other gods have to change their way of life they have to repurpose their temples they have to uproot everything except rename their streets they've got to rename their lakes they've got to change their flags they've got to name all the high schools over again it's just a huge pain in the ass how am i going to learn how to produce a random lake's name again i don't know how to pronounce that no it's too hard you're gonna break it up for me syllabically fuck you yeah, we may or may not have been making a, re- a local reference 
just now, me and Ben bitching about a local lake that had the name of a Civil War general, I think. Racist piece of shit. Just horrible. Just <laughs> bad. Yeah, you know, and like, you know, arguably did some things that benefited the region in, in like, in terms of colonialism. And so finally, we got to a point in the last few years when enough people um, organized around renaming this, this sacred lake. And it's a popular lake as well. It's one of the bigger lakes in this major metropolitan area where people get together and have fun and it's a wonderful time. And so all of these like buildings and like high rises and mid rises and beach clubs and gyms and streets and high schools and shit are all also named after this horrible piece of shit. So now the lake has been restored to its native name. Uh, and I've heard it pronounced two ways by two different um, native women from two different tribes, and so I'm not sure if it's Beremakaska or Beremakaska. Um, however, uh, people were real pissed. Some real stupid people <laughs> were real pissed about it. And hopefully they're over it by now, because, you know, it was the right thing to fucking do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Diatribe. Go on, Tina. <laughs> and scene. So, if you've never heard Akhenaten's name before, that's totally understandable, because after less than 20 years as pharaoh, he's removed from the throne and never heard of again, presumably because they killed him. Presumably because they killed him? They're not sure. They found a mummy in a tomb that's named, like, mummy letters and numbers. But they think it's him. Like an unmarked grave? Yes, kind of. And they think it's him only because his DNA matches that of his son who succeeded him. And we know who that son is. I mean, that's a fairly strong indicator. Yeah. What for some reason? What what was that? I said it works on Maury Povich, so it's got to be real. (laughs) You are the Pharaoh. (laughs) You are the Pharaoh. Oh, shit, I'm Pharaoh. Sorry. What are Egyptologists, if not Maury Povich for posterity? <laughs> the Maury Poviches of archaeology. Here at the Maury Povich School of DNA, we'll teach you how to find out who's the real father. <laughs> uh, is it this uh, mummy right here or that mummy over there? Tell you. <laughs> So basically, after the fall of Aten, Akhenaten, um, the worship of Aten was completely banned. They destroyed the imagery of him, all of like the the, the statues. Um, the city of Akhenaten is abandoned. They hated him. They basically just canceled him. They canceled him. Why, uh, why, outside of the fact that he changed their culture to one of monotheism, did they hate him? That's why. Yeah. That's all, that's all he had to do. <laughs> but they they live in a theocratic society. Yeah. Well, and on top of it, you also turned every other city that had another god that they prayed to into enemies, because you're telling them that not only are they incorrect, but now they're also blasphemers for worshiping a god that's not real because i just said that my god is the only real god oh man and that generally doesn't go over well does it no he also was just generally a bad king like you know his lands were being invaded and he did nothing about it and everything Mm. is just falling apart and he's just like 
you know, stuck in his little city with his family, worshiping his little sun disc, and people just hate him. Isn't it nice that we don't have a single uh, metaphor for that in today's society? <laughs> like, we don't have, thank God, we don't have a leader that tries to change the rules of everything. And then while mass crisis is going on, he just sits in his little golden throne uh, complaining about people not listening. I'm, I'm just glad we've gotten past that. I know, it's such a relief that that hasn't happened in just thousands of years. <laughs> So <laughs> to get this podcast back on track, um, even if you've never heard of Akhenaten, you've probably heard of his wife, Nefertiti. Mm-hmm. She uh, ruled, she likely ruled after he did, which is scandalous because like what a woman on the throne, a woman can lead. What? what? <laughs> With a vagina? With a vagina. And then after her came Akhenaten's son, Tutankhaten, who later changed his name to Tutankhamun aka King Tut. And King Tut's consort was Anuxinamun, his sister. Oh yeah. Which was which was very, very common in ancient Egypt, it turns out. Like it was it was a you could have many wives and you would just as a ruler have like one great good wife and then everybody else who you could just, you know, have kids with. So actually King Tut was not Nefertiti's son. She was the son of Akhenaten and possibly his sister. Yeah, it's the roadmaps of the of the pharaoh's genealogy is hideous. If you ever want a really fun one, uh, look up um, Cleopatra's genealogy, because all seven of the men ahead of her in her line all have the same name, and were all sleeping with the same women. So you don't even really know who was the dad, who was the brother, and who was the son, because they were all having children with the same people. Uh, And they all have the same name. It's so gross. (laughs) I am your father and your uncle. (laughs) Hey, dad, son, brother, what's up? You want to teach me how to throw a ball? I'll teach you how to throw a ball, and then we can walk the dog together. I told you incest was going to be a part of this episode. Oh I warned God. you. Oh my God. You know, it's one thing when it's in Game of Thrones and it's like under the veneer of fiction and I can just, you know, cringe for a minute and then be done with it and find redeeming qualities in the characters because that's how drama works. Um, but it's another thing to just that it actually happens and I just. I don't under, I don't have a brother, but I just can't imagine <laughs> the mental gymnastics that have to go on in order to sleep with your sibling. And I have no words. I just I can't even see and that's so. why you write an opera. <laughs> I is, mean is that is that why you I'm I'm opera? just guessing. I, Speculating. Me and old PG haven't chatted in a while, but uh, (laughs) behind every great opera, there's repressed ancestral feelings. I'm gonna go ahead on a limb and say that you could probably figure that out in at least half of the the famous operas around the world. I mean, I mean, we talked about it in the Ring Cycle, so yeah, that's true. There's gonna there's gonna be a chunk of them. I'm not gonna deny you that. (laughs) There's gonna be a chunk of incest. So, I thought this was an interesting choice of opera, incest aside, because first of all, the solstice is coming up. 
the second reason that I thought this was interesting is because a lot of Christmas traditions were originally pagan traditions. So Christmas mm-hmm. is literally the imposition of monotheism on polytheistic societies. And Ben is just like nodding his head so much he's going to give himself whiplash. <laughs> By fight, I have every holiday season. Oh, you're still engaging with it? Oh, I'm so proud I'm of you, buddy. I'm the only atheist in a, a predominantly Lutheran family on my mom's side. Uh, including four ministers and it always there's always a fight every year because somebody will post some bullshit about we have to celebrate his actual birthday and remember and i'm like yeah hold on and then everything drives off the road and jesus was a pisces yeah and it just ends up with me (laughs) drinking whiskey and listening to philip glass (laughs) as it should be yeah well i mean for those of you who don't know Christmas is on December 25th because that's when the solstice used to fall. Right. Yes. And so the so pagans were all celebrating the solstice anyway. And monotheism came in and said, hey, since you're celebrating, why not celebrate <gasps> Jesus? I just love picturing like a room full of pagans celebrating the solstice and just like a priest walking in all surreptitiously with like a bowl of holy water and just be like, <laughs> gotcha, 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 gotcha. <laughs> converted 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 we know that's not how it happened but it is a i mean but it kind of is like if you <laughs> if you look at how christianity crawled through uh like the norse and viking areas they were like no no, no. keep carving all your serpents and and your lightning bolts and then just just throw a little cross like we can work with a little cross in there yeah. and then over generations they kept being like well yeah but your ancestors carved the cross so they believed, and then we could just get rid of the serpents. And it was like a 300-year slow troll. It's like the long con. And by the way, those trees you bring inside every year, um, they're a sign of Jesus bringing life back to the world. Because if, if there's one thing Jesus knew about, it was pine trees. Oh, yeah. <laughs> super, super well-versed in the uh, coniferous breeds of trees down there in fucking Jerusalem. <laughs> I mean, I guess they might, they probably have some conifers in Jerusalem. They probably have conifers in that part of the world, right? No, they definitely don't. I don't know, man. No, I gotta look this shit up. Conifers in Israel, question mark. Cyprus, Aleppo. Yeah, they definitely have conifers. (laughs) Fuck you, Ben Quam. I knew something you didn't. (laughs) Are all conifers evergreens? Next Google search. All conifers have cones, but not all evergreens have cones. Not all evergreens are conifers. All right. (laughs) Now we all know. Oh, man. Well, that's really all I have for the first half. I am skilled at derailing you. (laughs) And it's always so nice to have a partner in crime in that area. (laughs) Secretly, this was a gift to me as well. (laughs) I'm an agent of chaos. All right. Well, I need another cocktail because I also do. That's yes. just glass or ice in my glass. Yeah. I mean, Philip glass? Yeah. In my Philip glass. In oh your Philip. It's time to fill up glass. glasses are named Philip. <laughs> oh, that was just awful. I've been waiting on that one. Come on. I knew it was going to happen. You've been sitting on that? Yeah. <laughs> Literally, I was going, to, I was coming to turn my computer on and I was like, I got a Philip glass for Philip glass. <laughs> I don't know whether to be proud or disappointed. 
I need more booze. I need to fill a glass for Philip Glass. See, Philip it's just fun. You gotta go with it. That's the thing that made me blush, but let's be honest, it's probably the ride. <laughs> um, also, another thing I was going to tell you guys is, you want to know how much gin I've already had? I spent a solid three seconds trying to take no cap off of a bottle. <laughs> I was like, why isn't it coming up? And it's because I was literally just spinning the wrapper. <laughs> let, me, let me make you feel a little bit better. Completely sober. I had an incredibly important meeting today at 9 a.m. And from 8.37 till 8.44 this morning, I walked around with my eyeglasses in my hand looking for my glasses. Oh, no. I literally oh, picked up my pillow and my covers that's a lot of minutes, with ben. the glasses in my hand, looking at my hands, going, where that's are my glasses? That's a lot of minutes, buddy. Well, so I'm, I'm not wearing them right now out of spite. <laughs> because how dare they do that to me? You're punishing your glasses. Nope, they should have spoken up and said, I'm here on your hand. They're in the corner. They did not get supper. Are they also <laughs> named Philip. Yeah, I, they might be now. <laughs> Philip glasses. You know what? <laughs> maybe the left side, that left lens is Ira and this one's Philip. <laughs> maybe I got a pair of cousins. I don't know. But I, <laughs> I, I am going to start that officially right now. Thanks to the Opera Plot Happy Hour. I will start calling my spectacles, my Philip and Ira's and wait until, I'll tell you guys, I'll do this. I'll text you when somebody actually gets it. <laughs> it's never going to happen. If somebody gets, okay. If somebody gets it, they're our next podcast. <laughs> done, done, done. Speaking of podcasts, you guys, this is a podcast about an opera. Do you want to hear about an opera? I'd love to. I don't know. Is it going to be as fun as this? <laughs> I mean, it might not be, but you'll okay, find a way to no, make it fun. I'm ready. I believe I'm in excited. you. <laughs> I'm ready. And I'm All excited. Right. So to set up this opera, we need to talk about Philip Glass's style of composing. <laughs> every, time, <laughs> every time you say glasses now, like is the possessive <laughs> glasses like you wear on your face. I'm collected. I'm ready to hear about an opera. So, Philip's style of composing, some would say is minimalist, which means composing with minimal material. Not like the Lush Russians or like the post-romantics where we have like huge orchestras, full chords, lots of melodies, counter melodies and such. Minimalist composing takes just the bare minimum of what you can do. So think like Victorian manor versus a streamlined like Scandinavian architecture. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's fucking brilliant. That's a really clear analogy. Yeah. <laughs> it, that, is, uh, that, that is incredibly apt. Yep. Like, <laughs> I know exactly guys. what you're trying yeah. to say. Go on. <laughs> So, so of course, I mean, who fits cleanly into any box? I don't actually think that Glass fits cleanly into the box of Minimalist because, yes, he uses very bare tonality, a lot of the same figures over and over and over. It's almost like there's this constant ostinato, this repeated pattern in Glass music, but it slowly morphs over time. And if you put a magnifying glass to it, there are these tiny variances everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's, like, very minimal but very intricate. Okay. 
and um, they, they, they turn his minimalism into something that's actually quite rather complex. So I think minimalism just doesn't quite describe what Philip Glass does. Yeah, for sure. I, can I slightly disagree with you? Yes. Okay, I, just a small point. I, I think that the style still fits what he does, but in saying minimalist, as a casual listener, you'll just basically write it off as he's just not doing a whole lot. But mm -hmm. I see it more in the, instead of um, like Scandinavian architecture, I actually see it more as like Swiss watch design where mm -hmm. the watch itself is meant to look incredibly sleek and simple on your hand. But in order to get it to do that, you have to have so much more intense and complex machinations underneath that. Yeah. And in order for him to use that musical language in as stripped bare as it can be from time to time, those little nuances end up being massive flourishes when you look at the piece as a whole. And I think mm -hmm. that that's why a lot of people, a lot of casual listeners, it's easy to write Philip Glass off as somebody that's just weird and I don't want to listen to because it does take an incredible amount of concentration and, and thought to understand what that message is when there's not a whole lot going on. You could hide a lot in a massive orchestra doing huge movements. You can't when you really strip it as bare as he does a lot with his music. Yeah, so. yeah. I would say um, I would say I totally agree with that. I would say, yeah, Philip Glass is that Swiss watch. It's it's everything that is that is intricate put together to make something that works without being gaudy about it. Mm -hmm. And it's actually quite lovely. Um, getting into this, I did not think I would like it, but I really, I, I am, I am, I am drinking the Philip Glass Kool Aid after this. <laughs> I should mention for you, Amanda. Are you drinking um, it out of a Philip Glass? <laughs> you know I am. <laughs> Um, I should mention for you that Philip Glass is not atonal or 12-tone. He stays very much in a tonal structure. Yeah. And it's very repetitive, like minor modes throughout this opera. It's really ethereal. It's mesmerizing. And if I if I had to compare it to something, I would say, imagine the X-Files theme song, but without the melody on top. Just like the do 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 it's just that over and over, but yeah. slowly morphing over time with no melody. Yeah. If you listen to that for like four hours, I think you would be in a trance. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to um there there are a handful of other podcasts. Um, one of which is Opera After Dark, which is also quite good. It's a little bit more <laughs> which is they, also quite also, good <laughs> also quite good um they don't have quite the propensity for nonsense that we do <laughs> so it's a little bit more intellectual we do get intellectual but i think it it just uh it's, it's a little bit more serious than ours but also still very good um and they were talking about and and played some samples of his music but they were talking about how it was the 80s and so there were probably substances and possibly these works are better with those substances. Substances was, only happened in the 80s, friends. Only happened in the 80s. Yeah, there are no substances now. We're actually just... Okay, sorry. That was a slight derailment, but yay, Opera After Dark. We like your podcast. Please talk about us on yours. <laughs> Okay, so basically Akhenaten is unlike any opera you've ever seen unless you've seen another Philip Glass opera. It just, you can only define it 
by by comparing it to other Philippois operas. And what's interesting is that it doesn't really have sung words, which is like what opera is about. Are they just singing syllables the whole time? I mean, for a lot of it. And actually, so so it does have sung words, but the words aren't exactly important. A lot of it is sung in Oz or whatever, just neutral vowels. But some of it is in like Aramaic or ancient languages. But the but it doesn't really matter what the translation is. The singing just becomes another instrument in the ethereal like orchestral texture that he's created. And yeah. after a while, it just it makes you feel like you exist outside of time. I'm on board with all of this. Like I like this. I like where this is going. But we're trying to tell a story, and so mm-hmm. if you're trying to tell a story in which there is exposition and there is climax and there's conflict and there's resolution. Are we just relying on interpretive dance? Like what? Yes. (laughs) Kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of. Yes. So the opera is structured in three acts and there are different scenes that are actually more like extended vignettes. So you really don't get a word for word translation in super titles. Rather, at the beginning of each extended vignette, you get a short description of where we are, when we are, and what happens. And from there, it is up to the stage director director to make that happen in the time allotted by the music. And again, the music is very ethereal. It's very repetitive so it does not give you clues as to what should happen when so it takes a very strong stage director to make this piece happen well so i was listening some of my research today i was listening to an interview with philip glass because again like for those who don't know he's still alive he's still composing um and he was talking about his experience with the kind of hierarchy of command of stage productions in opera and, and in other genres as well. Because, of course, he's worked with Samuel Beckett, like he's done original compositions for straight plays um, and he's worked in film. And so there's different hierarchies of who's in charge of what in each of these different genres. And in opera, <clears throat> he said in his experience, and I think that this definitely holds true except when you get into there's variations on this when you get into small companies because budget dictates everything and yes I won't digress uh but he was saying essentially like the 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 authority is the composer the composer and the lead producer decide who the stage director is and the stage director kind of then decides who the choreographer is and then the choreographer decides who this was interesting the choreographer decides who the costumer is which makes a fuck ton of sense but is not something that i've ever had the privilege of being able to adhere to um but essentially i think it makes a lot of sense that the composer oh and, and here's the other piece of this philip glass and he was one of very few composers to do this insisted for a large portion of his career he started his own publishing company so he was publishing his own music so he could make money off of it which is very fucking smart because that's where the money really is and he was also insisting for quite a while that anyone who wanted to hear his works live had to hire him to do it Mm. he performed his music whether he was conducting whether he was playing piano with an ensemble it didn't matter If you wanted to hear Philip Glass live, you needed to hire Philip Glass to perform it live. So 
I mean, that's very fucking smart. It is. <laughs> it's, it's very fucking smart. Because um, like it had, had Verity done it in the days of Verity, we didn't have recording. So Verity could set mm-hmm. precedent in, in the way that he would dictate a tradition that other mm-hmm. people would carry on. Mm-hmm. But in the day and age of recording, Philip yeah. Glass can set a stronger precedent for yeah. the way his music is performed. That is Absolutely. so smart. Well, and I think that if you're, if you're composing in a way that doesn't have strong exposition like clear obviously translatable exposition I just as a stage director I'm terrified Mm -hmm. by the prospect of this of of being given a totally blank like okay here's what the music sounds like and here's how we need the story to overall go I mean I would need to read and read and read and read and read and read and read which fine great I would also need to hire an extremely skilled collaborator as a choreographer. I mean, it's just, it's a very daunting task. So it makes a lot of fucking sense to me that Philip Glass is, generally speaking, he's he's doing these works very hands-on with the stage directors because I think he would have to, mm-hmm. at least until a precedent is set. Yeah. And I mean, I I think about this in, I mean, compare and contrast it to Wagner, right? So Wagner is writing his own librettos and he is using the music to dictate what happens dramatically when. So as a stage director, if you're studying his stuff later, well, here's a huge hit in the orchestra. Therefore, this dramatic thing has to hit exactly at this time, right? But Philip Glass isn't doing that with his music. He's doing that in collaboration with other people. So he's still having a control over the way that the drama is represented on stage, but it is so different from the way that Wagner does it. Yeah, it is really interesting. Because something that I was thinking about as I was listening to all these different biographies and and reading them today, because I do this the day of, (laughs) (laughs) uh, was that it did strike me as very, like a cousin to Gesamtkunstwerk, the, the complete work of art that Wagner pioneered. And yet, it's not as easily distilled to others to do this work, which I think in some ways is really honorable and respectable in terms of his career. It's a little bit of a barrier to entry. It's like a a level of inaccessibility. If you wanted to do a work by Philip Glass, you've got a lot of hurdles to jump over in order to do it. You know what I mean? Let me give you a flip side to that, because say you are a director who wants to take an opera, but there is so much there that if you ignore it to do the things that you feel driven to do with this story, your audience is going to be mad. Oh, Oh, those actions didn't match that music. Mm. You know, like the, the, the character motivation is different from what the music is telling me. Whereas Glass is giving you a scaffolding and saying, do your best, do your worst, do whatever, do something. (laughs) Well, it it also like takes down some hurdles where you don't have to figure out how to dress a stage in 1700s Volga, Russia. You can do whatever you want with it because this is the, this is the canvas as the director, as the stage director, paint, paint your actors paint your sets paint your motions to this soundtrack and then show the world what you've done yeah and i would i would agree that um 
knowing the backstory of Akhenaten, I'm glad like when I when I finally saw this opera, I had done the research and I knew what I was watching, but I was also kind of sad because I would like to go into it knowing nothing and experiencing experiencing, sorry, the rye is slurring my words for me today. <laughs> um, experiencing exactly what the stage director was giving me without any prior knowledge because I I really think that the story he's trying to tell and the message he's trying to tell doesn't necessarily need to be centered in 1300s BC Egypt. He could be telling the story in general. As we've already highlighted by talking about the fact that this is very easily mapped onto a political landscape very recent to us in 2020. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's, you know, that's, 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 that's nice. That's nice to think about that it's kind of a blank slate situation. Before we jump into this, I, I do have to say there are two characters who use words that we actually have, like, understandable words. Oh and God. one of them is Amenhotep Third, whose death starts the entire opera, and he acts as this sort of out-of-time narrator. He never sings. He weaves in and you out of the drama. Again. You did it again. What? Did I? Oh, I said narrator, didn't I? Holy shit. You said narrator again. Narrator. Narrator. What episode was that? I don't know, but I, one of these days I'm going to learn how to say that word while drinking. I still fuck it up typing it every time. I put the extra R in the middle of it every time. Thank you. I 100% do. Yep. I think because there's like an implied shadow vowel between those mm-hmm. two R's. Narrator, narrator. There is not an implied shadow well, vowel. Well, I mean, two out of three people on this podcast right now hear the implied shadow vowel. That's so the majority. <laughs> oh my God. You're going to call me out every time. I'm going to be so. How can I not, Tina? This is a podcast. We rely on our voices and our articulation. You're saying words like <sighs> narrator. Oh, mon dieu. Okay. Okay. You Here know what, go. though? I did I did say something stupid at dinner tonight, which is that the bread we were eating was. Don't say Asa- it. Asagio cheese. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. Moving on before I yell at you. He acts as a sort of out of time narrator, but he never sings he weaves in and out of the drama speaking only it's like declamatory poetry and what's really cool is that it can be done in whatever language you choose so if you perform it perform it in america it can be in english if you perform it in germany it can be in german etc and we'll talk about the other character who sings in words later act one We are set in 1370 BC. It is year one of Akhenaten's reign in Thebes. And scene one is his father's funeral. And his father is dead at the top of this opera, but you see his character witnessing his own burial, which is kind of cool. And he he recites funeral text that has been written on the pyramids. Open are the double doors of the horizon. Unlocked are its bolts. It's beautiful. And then Aie, Amanhotep III's wife, Akhenaten's mother, and a small male chorus are doing this funeral hymn. It's it's sung in Egyptian, but again, we don't really see the words projected. You just know that it is this funeral hymn. And later, the full chorus joins to sing it. And the music is basically this march. 
it's based on the chords of A minor. We are just very stuck in like A minor triads and it grows to intensity towards the end. And that is it. That is the entire scene. I think that's, I'm really, I'm, the fact that the lyrics don't have to be projected onto the back is really cool to me. I thought you would like that. Yeah. I find that to be a really distracting aspect of opera. That's part of why I really prefer opera in English, but it doesn't eliminate the need for the super titles. Mm -hmm. I think I might be a big fan of this opera. We're already act one. We're only act one scene one and Amanda's already on board. So act one scene two, we're at the coronation of Akhenaten. There is this lengthy orchestral introduction. Akhenaten appears. He's getting crowned the high priest, Aie and Horemhab, who's a general who later becomes Pharaoh after King Tut's death. They sing this ritual text, and the narrator recites this list of royal titles that are bestowed upon Akhenaten while he's crowned. Did you hear it too, Ben? Yeah. <laughs> Fucking shit! Did I? <laughs> I always just go with the British narrator. Narrative. Oh my gosh. <sighs> I was fine until I looked at Amanda, and then I saw her going. <laughs> And I, was like, I thought you guys were like really into the things I was saying. Little did I know you were laughing at me. It can be column A and column B. I can, it's not mutually exclusive. I can be both. <laughs> uh, man, I'm going to be so self-conscious the rest of this episode because I mentioned this narrator a lot. <laughs> there you go. That was the solution last Nailed time it. too. <laughs> Just emphasize the word. Okay, moving on. So... Um, after the coronation, the chorus repeats the ritual text from the beginning. Again, we're just in A minor. It's very, very A minor. And scene three takes place at the window of appearances, which is like a balcony where rulers make announcements. After an introduction in, once again, A minor, Akhenaten sings praise to the creator in Egyptian, and this is the first time we actually hear him sing. We're about 40 minutes into the opera this point, And you realize that this man who has been grandly coronated, all this, like this pomp and circumstance, is a countertenor. <laughs> so basically, if you want to perform this opera, <laughs> you need about a million fucking dollars. Presumably, you could do it with a mezzo. Oh, that's where I yeah, went. You could do it with a mezzo. Good job, yes. Ben. Eye makeup, headdress. Yeah, we could make that work. Yep, 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 yep. So here is Philip Glass's reasoning for doing it with a countertenor. Um, in Egyptian society, there is this toxic, virile masculinity. If you look at like paintings and statues of pharaohs and gods they are just like muscled and they're just like manly men and then along comes Akhenaten and you see him and he is like skinny but with big hips and he's very much a balance of the masculine and the feminine which is shocking to these people and so making him a countertenor pays homage to that, but also because his voice is higher, presumably it's closer to the sun. Oh, and clever. Help me out. So in the trilogy, you had uh, this one, you had Einstein, and who was the third? Gandhi. So all absolute pinnacles of fame and intelligence of their eras 
but all also not traditional masculine men. Huh. Tell me more about this as it relates to Einstein. Well, yeah. So Einstein is an incredible mind, but at no point did he ever push any sort of um, like physical, like we must keep the body as fit as we do the mind. Uh, there was, he, he was a very small and a very slight person. He got more portly as he got old. But uh, Einstein was a, a as we all do, Ben. As yeah, we that's all fair. do. Uh, but Einstein was never a, a large human, and he never used his physicality to assert his dominance over any field. Oh. Mahatma Gandhi was also much the same. He was a very small and a very slight human who changed the world simply with the his words and the performance of them. Same thing for Einstein. And obviously, while we don't know what he sounded like, that's what, in my opinion, that's what Glass saw in the Pharaoh was that, again, we have that same trope of if I think higher thoughts, I don't have to best everybody physically. I can simply change the world with the way that I see things. Fuck Ooh. yeah. Okay. Okay, Ben. I Guess who's just uh, guess who's just inching their way closer to a second special special guest ship on this show? Okay, buddy, I see you. I am so on board with that. I like yeah. that a lot. Fuck yeah, absolutely. And as an extension, that's also I think that may be Philip Glass saying something about the society that he looks around at, because he is also not a giant man. He is slightly nebbish in his appearance, and I I don't know that I've ever seen a picture of him where I didn't think that. Oh my God, Ben. Oh my God. I was going to tag him in my tweet about this post and now I don't feel like I can. <laughs> I, I just, I just want to clarify. I'm not saying that he as a person is. I'm saying that all three people in these, this trilogy of operas and him as a human would be regarded as that by a masculine society. Uh... So if you look at, if you look at Philip Glass with pinwheel glasses and his kind of crazy hair, and a slighter frame, the toxic masculinity side of the society that has been prevalent this entire time okay. from ancient Egypt to now would view him as nebbish and we don't need to listen to him. And then you look okay. at these three operas and it's tying a through line to people who use their mind to rise above the bullshit of their own societies. I'm not saying okay. he is, I'm saying that he fits in the same line as the characters that he wrote these operas about. And were he on here right now, I'm sure I'd get shouted down, but I would have no problem saying that. That I, I think that that's a really easy thread to pull. Mm. I was actually gonna ask you guys if you think that, if, if you feel that Philip Glass feels himself in these operas 100. in that way. I think so. And you got there so. before I even that asked it. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. Okay, all right, Ben, all right, all right. One more, one more notch in the lipstick case of does Ben get to come back on the show? Promises. <laughs> Just angling for a second episode, guys. <laughs> That's all. I, it's the long con. <laughs> so to jump back into this, I will say that in 1983, when this premiered, the countertenor voice had not made a comeback at that point, like it has nowadays. So it was even more shocking to audiences. The countertenor has made a comeback nowadays. Yep. Yep. I mean. So, so of course, we used to have the castrati, which were boys who were castrated before their <laughs> which voices Which is apparently changed. unethical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, some people are touchy. Um, so the castrati, 
were replaced by mezzos Mm -hmm. who could portray these roles and countertenor is kind of a more modern invention of a man who is singing with full power in falsetto so presumably countertenors would actually make great baritones in general but they choose to sing in that range and make a career in that range you're looking at me really strangely, but I will guarantee you that most countertenors you meet are probably truly baritones who choose to sing in falsetto. Whispers Boney there. <laughs> <laughs> so last week when I asked you for a sensitive baritone. Yeah. You I'm giving you a countertenor <laughs> instead. Oh man. So basically the countertenor, I I mean, presumably people were okay with this because like the Bee Gees were a thing. <laughs> but like in opera, people were kind of shocked to hear a countertenor on stage. And well, yeah, 40 minutes in. I think that's that's a wonderful little like surprise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like he's joined by Nefertiti on stage, who is a mezzo, and she actually sings lower than him for a lot of the show. I will straight up say I'm also a complete sucker for that dynamic. It happens very rarely. So then we have a queen, tie. I'm just going to call her queen, tie. She's a soprano, and she just soars kind of above everything. And these are basically our three main characters through the whole thing. How so- is queen, tie related to Nefertiti and Akhenaten. She's Akhenaten's mother. Mm-hmm. Okay. I thought Nefertiti was Akhenaten's mother. She's no, his Nefertiti wife. So basically, this is the end of Act One. We've had the death of Amenhotep III, the coronation of his son, who, for our intents and purposes here, we're just calling Akhenaten, but at this point, really, he's Amenhotep IV. And then we just see the royal family of Akhenaten. Um, Nefertiti and Ty just united at the end of Act One. And that's it. Okay. All right. How y'all doing on beverages? You need a little break? I'm scared. <laughs> I want more to drink, but I don't know if it's a good idea. Tell you what, we got two more acts to go. Let's get through Act Two. And then if you need a drink before Act Three, you let me know. I think that's wise. Cool. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your mother. Drink more. Something I have never heard in my life. No, I'm your mother. Take 15 minutes and see how your body reacts to the alcohol you've already ingested. Did you see how I was like, mom, negative thought. Yes, I did, sweetheart. I did. It's okay. It's okay. All right. Act two, scene one, the temple. The scene opens in, guess what key? A minor. (laughs) And (laughs) we are with the high priest of Amun and a group of priests, and they're singing a hymn to Amun, who is the principal god of the old order of the temple. And then the music starts getting really dramatic, and Akhenaten, Queen Tai, and their followers come in and attack the temple. And this scene is all just wordless singing. It gets kind of chromatic for the first time in the show, and we get to A flat and then up to E minor, which is significant. So the temple roof is removed and the sun god Aten's rays invade the temple, thus ending Amun's reign and laying the foundation for the worship of the only god, Aten. Okay, so the three of them come in 
and attack is that that's got to be symbolic though like they're not actually physically attacking are they oh my gosh you had a beverage delivered look at that that is love ladies and gentlemen also masterful oh. reverse walking out of the room <laughs> very sneaky. that was jim carrey level of reverse Oh my god! Oh, listen to that ice clink. Yeah. So much better in a mason jar. Yeah, it's the clink in a glass is always better in a mason jar. Holy, believe that. So back to what you were saying before you had a drink so wonderfully delivered. Um, hmm. The the staging of that is up to the director entirely. The music gets more chaotic and it goes from A minor, which we've been in for most of the show, to E minor which is the furthest we can get away from A minor on the circle of fifths. But I will also point out that in the key of A, E is the five chord. Yeah. Meaning that if you go to the five chord, it at some point has to resolve back to the one chord in order mm -hmm. for it to sound final, which is just a little bit of musical foreshadowing here. We're creating a musical equation. Also, those are two really easy chords to play on acoustic guitar. Back. <laughs> they're also really easy on piano because they're all white keys. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, quick question. When you say this is up to the director, I guess my what I'm picturing in my head is literally three people storming a group of a larger group of people and somehow defeating them. I did the say down in the same. So is the chorus and their involved? followers. I did say uh, and their followers. Uh, uh, okay, so Jin, um, I'm tracking. Go on. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, Act Two, Scene Two. We have Akhenaten and Nefertiti, and they get to sing a love duet. They have like a love scene. It's very sweet. So the narrator <laughs> recites a prayer-like poem to the sun god. And the music is still in E minor. Um, and the same, the same poem, the exact same words are recited a second time. But this time, the intent is that it's a poem from Akhenaten to Nefertiti. So they use the same words with two different intents here. And then Akhenaten and Nefertiti sing the same text again, but they sing it to each other in Egyptian as this intimate love duet. So as you can see, this is another way that they get rid of having to use super titles in this piece because the same poem's already been recited twice. We totally understand what the words are, so we don't really need to care what they are. We just need to care about what they mean in each, iter each iteration of them. How much does this dip into my major pet peeve of gratuitous repetition in opera? Um, it's, it's not like Rossini repeating the same two sentences for six minutes. It is, you say it once, you say it a second time, but the intent has changed and you say it a third time and you don't really need to know what the words are anymore because it's all about the intent. And this okay, is the, I'm this is the, the, um, delicate machinations of minimalism. Where yes. You're just slightly shifting the intent and slightly shifting the subject of like who it's being sung to. And in that, you're changing the meaning of all of the words. Yes. Yes. It's like when you watch tiny house videos, which I spend <laughs> a lot of time doing. And they're like, and by the way, this thing that pulls out is our dining table, but also we use it as our office. <laughs> Small change. 
Is that what it's like? I mean, okay. <laughs> it's the same tool for a different intent. You love me. Moving on. <laughs> this may, this maybe was not your best metaphor of the night, but no, I'll it's, give perfect. It to you. it's perfect. It's <laughs> perfect. Scene three, the city. So the narrator speaks a text which is taken from the boundary stones of the new capital of the empire, Akit Aten, which means the horizon of Aten. So they constructed this new city and on the boundary stones of it wrote these words. And it describes the construction of the city. And the city has all these large light filled spaces to welcome in Aten. And there's this brass fanfare and the city is completed and everybody who's completed is like celebrating in this lighthearted dance. And then there's a contrast with stark ritualistic music that the act began with. And then we go into scene four, which is the hymn to the sun, which is the only time when Akhenaten sings an aria. And where he sings in a language that we can understand, where the text is supposed to be something that we latch on to and pay attention to. And it's basically the central piece of the opera. The whole thing builds to this hymn to the sun. And it's also one of those moments where it can be translated to the language of the audience. Especially because in opera, when you're, when you're performing canonical works, translations are shit. Oh, yeah. They're outdated. They're they're outdated. They don't make any sense rhythmically. Like, the syllabic breakdown is just garbage, and and the translations are loose at best in order to make any rhythmic sense, and it's just... Or to make really bad, like, grade school rhymes. Yeah. I hate that, too. (laughs) So I appreciate this this blank slate of (laughs) prayer. This opera watching it from a performer's standpoint seems like it would be hell to memorize because it is so many repeated patterns and there is nothing that is grounding you which is really yeah it's really effective because starting to listen to it is like it's like one of those um like illusions that you look at and you look at it at first and you're like what the fuck am I looking at and suddenly you see the picture within the picture and you can't unsee it that is Philip Glass and it's it's just like it's so hard to learn a part on your own that doesn't have context. You really have to like learn it and really solidify it as an ensemble. And you really have to trust your conductor to make sure that you are where you think you are. Cause it's the same thing over and over. There are no words and you don't change anything except for very subtly. And like, how many times have I repeated this? Is this the time when I change it subtly? Have I done this and 18 another, times yet? And another hallmark of his is that all the different orchestral parts and the voice could be following entirely different time signatures or at least that's what it feels like and so it's particularly difficult to anchor yourself even in like a melodic structure Mm -hmm. and say like oh I heard this and therefore I need to do this now because it can change subtly and also because everybody is following a different playbook at that point and like i said earlier this music when you get into it it really does make you feel like you're out of time and like you're in a trance like thinking back to you know the classical composers and we have like major is happy and minor is melancholy and this just gets rid of all that together and it says separate yourself from everything time is meaningless just (gasps) be in this moment oh my god 
I know. I love it. It's so good. Who needs to smoke pot anymore? You just listen to <laughs> Philip Glass for three hours. Don't take that away. I was going to say, again, we can be in column A and column B here. These do not have to be mutually exclusive. I don't want to have to keep saying that, but I feel like I have to keep saying that. <laughs> I do. I, I Going off of what you just said, I actually do have a, a lineup for, I spent 20 years as a DJ. I do have a lineup for that, but I want to wait until the till after we're done talking about the plot. But I will I will come back around to that. What what you just said about the slight changes there there is a in the DJ world there is a very very similar thing, and it's it's eerie that you guys just got there because that's what I've always thought about Philip Glass, and it's kind of cool hearing two people from a wildly different backgrounds kind of hear the same thing that I do. Okay. So before we went off on our tangents, um, we're at the point where Akhenaten is singing the hymn to the sun. He is alone on stage and he just sings forever and ever about the sun. And what's cool is this offstage chorus comes in closer to the end of it and they sing Psalm 104 in Hebrew. And I was going to like put some of the text to Psalm 104, but it's so fucking long. So if you're curious, just look it up yourself. (laughs) So what this is saying is like Psalm 104 comes some like 400 years after this, but it strongly resembles the sentiment that Akhenaten is singing in this hymn to the sun. Thus Psalm 104 emphas- from the Bible, I presume. The Christian Bible. The Hebrew Bible. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it emphasizes that he is the first founder of this monotheistic religion and it has echoes in history like moving forward. And that is the end of act two. And I've already been brought a drink. So we can just keep going into act and three. It's obvious I don't need more than this one. <laughs> <laughs> so act three, we are at year 17 of Akhenaten's reign, which is the last year of his reign. And scene one is him with his family. We open with the love theme from act two and Nefertiti and Akhenaten and their six daughters are singing wordlessly in contemplation. They are just oblivious to anything that is happening outside of the palace. And the music switches from E minor to F minor. Things are starting to get a little get a little bit tense. And the narrator starts reading these letters from Syrian vassals who've been asking for help against their enemies. And Akhenaten doesn't send troops. His land is being seized, plundered by their enemies. He doesn't do a fucking thing. And the scene focuses on Akhenaten and his family who are just still oblivious to their country falling apart. And that leads into scene two, which is the attack and fall of the city. So Haremhab, the general from earlier, who later becomes Pharaoh, and the high priest of Aten, they instigate all the people, the chorus, and they they sing all those vassals' letters that the narrator's reading in the original language, and they basically attack the palace until the royal family is presumably killed and the city of the sun is destroyed. And then in act three, we are in the ruins of the city and the music from the very beginning of the opera returns. The scribe recite the scribe, also the narrator recites an inscription on Aye's tomb, praising the death of the heretic and the new reign of the old gods. And they describe the restoration of Amun's temple by Akhenaten's son, Tutankhamun, and you actually see him coronated 
in this opera. And then the scene shifts to present day Egypt. And we are in the ruins of the city, the former capital, Akhetaten. And the narrator appears, he's like, he appears as a different character. He's like a modern tour guide who's speaking texts from a guidebook to Egypt, describing the ruins and how there's... God damn it. God damn it. (laughs) Care to elaborate on that God damn it? It just became kitsch. Like, it just, like, it... I mean, it's fine. John Elton did it with Tim Rice and Aida. Like, it's fine. I get it. Like, it has dramatic effect. But, like, I just didn't really think we were going in that direction, I guess. Hold on. That's not the end. That's not the end. So it does not end totally. Did I just say John Elton? Elton Elton John? John. (laughs) Ben didn't even make fun of me. It's less less opera plot and more happy hour tonight. (laughs) Yep. Thanks, Tattersall. Okay, 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 okay. We have one more scene. The ghosts of Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and Queen Tai appear, and they just sing wordlessly amongst these ruins. And the funeral procession from the very beginning of the opera starts. And then the music starts to introduce a bass line from the beginning of Einstein on the Beach, which was the first part of the trilogy. And thus it provides this musical bracket for the entire trilogy. Whatever started it, because ended it. Because the Gandhi it. one is the second one, right? Yes. Okay. And that is the end of the opera. Okay. 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 All right. <laughs> we were promised a DJ story. So there's, a, there's a, a thing that I love that took me a long time to come around on. Because when you're, when you're spoon-fed as much pop music as we are as we grow up, you start to learn that there are rules that don't exist in all of music. They only exist in pop music, but we think subconsciously that those are actual rules. And um, when I, for a few years of my life, uh, for a decade of my life, I exclusively DJed. And you start to realize when you're doing shows with other people that it's never really great if you guys both do the same thing. It's always better if you can kind of play off each other and have different specialties and I never really got into like the direct house and and direct trance lines but I had a lot of friends that did and um when my wife and I were in Paris um I was just trying to figure out if there was like a show or a band or something that we could go see and uh I was looking at like their version of like bands in town and a DJ that I was friends with was playing a show while we were in Paris so I called him and just said, hey, like, what's going on? What time is your set? I'd love to come see you. And he was like, 3.30 in the morning to 7 in the morning. <laughs> okay. You know what? I want to go to a club in Norway or in, in Paris. I'll, I'll figure this out. So we go to the show, and it's, it's all trance all night. The DJ duo that was opening for him, one dude was like a complete – musical savant but was really awkward in front of crowds the the group that was playing ahead of him the the musical savant of the duo would create this entire soundscape that would just repeat and repeat and repeat and he would slowly build so he would he would slowly add in instruments to the same thing and that's what creates a really slow dramatic build is every few minutes a new instrument would come in he's playing all these instruments his partner literally just took a fuckload of ketamine and then sang whatever came to his mind. And I was mystified by this. And then I'm watching my friends set up and I'm like, how do you take over from that? Because it's already like a pretty wild scape. 
And he starts at 3.30. And at 3.30, the song that he starts with is matching tempo, but it's just um, like a soft bass. So it's just like a wow, 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 wow. And then a few minutes into that, a kick drum comes in. So there's like an actual like percussive hit. Yeah. And then after that, now you have a drone that would be from like a cello, like a whoa. So now it's in tune with the bass and it's slowly, and this is like, now we're 20 minutes in and this is all that's happened, right? Oh, wow. So this song builds and builds and builds. And we're now basically right around 4 a.m. So a half an hour of this slow build off of another group that was doing a slow build. And all of a sudden it culminates, it pauses for two beats. And then when the beat drops back in, there's just a hi-hat with it. And I watched a thousand people in a club lose their minds because they had been walked down this path for 30 minutes. And now you have a release because you have the first thing that's hitting the upper registers of the and that was enough because of that slow build that was enough to create this release of complete elation and if you build things that same way if you drone an a minor for an entire act an e minor would be a release an f minor might tickle might feel uncomfortable but it's making you feel uncomfortable because you've been lulled into this almost like hypnotic sweet spot and as you build these little things in, because you created an environment where nothing else had come in in so long, it creates this incredible release for your ears because you've just been desperate for the next integer of this equation to be entered. Yes, that. That <laughs> is what Philip Glass offers do to you. That is exactly it. And I was watching this opera with my husband, who is a composer, his degrees in theory composition, and we were listening to the- that. Yes, my husband's, in in addition to being a software engineer nerd. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised. He's also a composer. <laughs> um, and I just remember him saying, this is the most boring overture I've ever heard. And then for the rest of the opera, it just puts you in this trance and you don't think about the music, but the music is the thing that is just like in your head. It's, and, it's a strange dichotomy. And thank God for Wagner, who insisted that we turn the lights down and we like focus on what's happening and the sounds we're hearing so that we can really immerse ourselves in that I have to say also Ben I just really enjoyed that story and I also really enjoyed the image that I had of you in a club full of people which is a place I almost would never find myself (laughs) that sounds terrifying to me uh but just being surrounded by people who are just like low-key thrashing and just observing them absolutely like calmly observing this mass of people it's uh, it's uh, like i i could tell there is a 45 minute version of that story that i could tell because i was so absolutely baffled i had never been to something that was that underground trancy like I was used to when I would go to like, even back in the late nineties, when I would go to old school raves, every DJ had like a different genre. This was an entire night basically devoted to trance. And it was my first time basically immersing myself in a Philip Glass, like overture. Like that was, that was it. Everyone that played that night had very minimalist music going on and watching how when people get used to such little movement when there is slight movement 
how much they lose their fucking minds. Like mm -hmm. it was fascinating. And when you guys invited me on this one, the minute that I kind of started going down the Philip Glass library that I had on my computer, it's, it's so easy to make that jump. Like you can, yeah. you can see the roots of that. I guarantee you, if you draw back to what inspired like people like Kraftwerk and the original like Chicago house scene, it's one part disco and one part minimalist. And that's how you end up yeah. with trance and honestly jungle too. Like there's a lot of stuff that gets tied up in that. I also really love that Paris is where Philip Glass says that he did his his most significant growth as a composer. That's where he really learned to like, you know, he he actually like in this in, in his in this interview that I was listening to of his um, he looks back on his time at Juilliard and all these states schools, which are like totally prestigious and like, like valid musical experiences. And he, he says as much, but he looks back on those and he says, it just wasn't challenging in the way that I needed it to be. And he moved to Paris and he had Boulanger who I, I personally hadn't heard of, but apparently during the 60s mm -hmm. she taught anybody who was anybody mm -hmm. even before then the we can play six degrees of separation from nadia boulanger with most composers right. nowadays and it he attributes crazy. he attributes that period to a massive amount of his personal growth as a composer and so mm -hmm. i find that really fascinating that you had that experience that per, that that distinctly glass-esque experience yeah. <laughs> I was so mad because I just kept thinking this could never exist in, in Minneapolis. Like we, it just wouldn't happen. And when we, when we got there, there was a line down the block. And when we left, there was still a line down the block and they were going to keep playing music until noon the next day. I am exhausted just thinking about that. <laughs> so, so what you're telling me, like hearing this, I just, I can't imagine like the, the core subscribers at the Met liking something like that, like the Metropolitan Opera. Like we, we always talk about how like all these old blue hairs and they just want to see the classics. And you would think that modern audiences would hate trance music and they would hate Philip Glass and they would, they would hate anything because it just breaks down so many barriers of opera. But I have to tell you, the Met did a production of Akhenaten last year and the audiences fucking loved it. It was totally sold out insane and i'm telling you guys i never say spend money at the met nobody's ever gonna hire me after listening to this but i never say that i like something that the met did so much that you absolutely fucking have to watch it but seriously spend the money pay like a month of the the met opera app and just watch the production of Akhenaten. Just, just fucking watch it because it is one of the most beautiful most effective productions i have seen in a long time and i rarely say that about opera and i hardly ever say that about the met so. you know what i would fucking love to i would fucking love to for exactly that reason because you and i decry regularly the fact that these major institutions of opera are pander not pandering i mean i think it makes a ton of sense to show the major institutions who have a tendency to cater rather than pander because i'm being kind to cater to those older audiences who have the money to show them that there is still an audience for opera but we just have evolving tastes and we mm -hmm. want the culture and the canon to evolve with us. Otherwise, that is going to be the death of opera. Speaking of evolving tastes, 
earlier you were talking about how you were not sure about this bare scaffolding that glass gives us. I mean, me personally, I'm just, I'm just like intimidated. (laughs) Yes. But also this is something that allows opera to move into the future because it is scaffolding and it does not dictate that this character has to be anti-Semitic or this character has to be any type in of blackface. Absolutely. Exactly. No, you're exactly. Totally right. you're totally exactly. Right. So thinking about it, 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 thinking of it in that frame, are you less intimidated or yeah. are you still intimidated, but more excited? No. As soon as you guys were like, I'm going to counter that and, and, and think about it as more of a blank slate in which you can do whatever the fuck you want to. I mean, I'm intimidated simply because of my own imposter syndrome as a stage director um but i'm also really heartened by the idea that it can be whatever you imagine it to be because that is extremely freeing as a stage director i say this a lot when i talk about the music that i love but if if you don't allow art to be living and breathing and active then you don't celebrate art you celebrate history mm-hmm. and that's that's fine but you have to say i celebrate history yeah. I don't love art. Yeah. A fucking yes. man. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Ben, it was so nice to have you on the show. I honestly, I, I've been super excited about doing this. And uh, if you will have me, I would absolutely adore coming back. And uh, I would love if you'd let me uh, to maybe take in uh, the next opera before the show, just so I could actually maybe speak a little bit about that. Totally. From novices perspective absolutely you you have earned the right and also please if you're listening check out ben's podcast libations for everyone Everyone. it is delightful they drink even more than we do where can they find you uh we're on all of the different podcast things it's lfe podcast or if you just type in libations for anyone on any of the socials you'll find us is it anyone or everyone everyone we're just trying to create we're trying to help create those bar conversations so we have different really interesting people from all over come on and every 10 minutes we have a shot of whatever their beverage is and then we start a conversation and every 10 minutes we have another shot and we switch the conversation oh my god i would be so a we are mess. we like to say we're sipping shots and sharing thoughts uh but it's all about just a discussion so we invite everybody to play along at home talk about how you'd answer the questions and feel free to fire us any questions. We love being able to throw in um, audience participation questions whenever what we can. What day of the so. week do you guys typically air? Uh, it airs on Wednesdays uh, with the holiday schedule and with um, the COVID quarantine. Our recording schedule has been a little bit different because we're just trying to make sure that we can be as safe yeah. as possible. But um, month of December, we should have an episode up every Wednesday. Cool beans. Yeah, absolutely. And late January, early February, we're going to have you two on. It's going to be awesome. And I will find a way to tie these two shows together. I think it'll be great. We're stoked. And Ben, thank you so much. (laughs) This is really lovely to have you on the show. You're you're just a a shining star of intellectualism. (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure uh, to, to bask in the glow of both of you. And honestly, thank you for shining your light on a genre of music that maybe gets overlooked because of stereotypes societally. Um, I think that anything that we can do to save living and breathing art and keep it living and breathing is the most noble of causes because art is what makes life worth living. So love to both of you and thank you for doing what you're doing. And it's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, buddy. We'll We'll see see you soon.
I already miss Ben, though. I know. Isn't he wonderful? Can he come back forever and ever? Absolutely. Let's put him back on, man. He's great. I feel like you've given me more of a gift than I've given you so far this month. That's okay. I'm really good at gift giving. Okay. I'm going to try to make it up to you next week. You can talk to my husband about how superior my gift giving skills are. (laughs) This sounds like a marital debate that I don't want to get into. Yeah, it pretty much is. It pretty much is. (laughs) (laughs) But I do have, I do have one more thing to say about this opera. If you don't have a chance to watch it, um, there is a podcast called Aria Code. It is through WNYC, I believe. And they examine a single opera aria every week. And they do an episode on the Hymn to the Sun from Akhenaten. And it's really interesting because they have an Egyptologist on. They have Anthony Ross Costanzo, who sang Akhenaten at the Met last year. And they have a few other people on to talk about this aria, just give different perspectives on it. And the episode, uh, a title, is I am your sunshine, your only sunshine. (laughs) I will post links to that on our website because it's just too good. So if you want to know more about the show, you can check us out at operaplothappyhour.com. If you want to send us an email about the drink that you are drinking in your Philip glass this evening, <laughs> you can email it to us at operaplothappyhour at gmail.com. And you can also visit our show on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Oh, yeah, I already mentioned our website. So that's all I got. What do you got? So adjust your Philip glasses and you will be able to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And while you're there, please rate and review us because it helps other people find the show and because it makes us feel good about ourselves. And this month, as you may know, I'm giving Amanda the gift of a little bit of control. So she gets to decide what kind of opera she wants to talk about and I'll make her wildest dreams come true. Amanda, what opera do you want to talk about next week? Or what opera theme do you want to talk about? Yeah, you know, I think that one of my fondest memories of Christmas is being a little spooked (laughs) because of a Christmas carol. I like to be a little spooked. (laughs) I mean, I'm all about Halloween happening all year round. So I have a Halloween baby. Halloween is every day of the year when you have a child born on October 31st. So please spook me. I feel like... I feel like I'm supposed to be giving you a gift with this topic, but you're like giving me a gift because well, Spoop is is just my MO. I'm so excited for this. I'll I'll send you the name of a composer. So I'm gonna leave you with a quote from Moliere. Of all the noises known to man, opera is the most expensive. Mm-hmm.